it probably will be challenging and you're probably going to hear a lot of no's. Every no is one step closer to the yes and it takes a lot of persistence to kind of keep going. So it's very important that you need to create a support network for yourself so that as you're going through this process that you have people to kind of check to, check in on and to talk to on the days when it's it's hard. Welcome to another enlightening episode of the Fresh Start Podcast, where we explore the stories, experiences, and journeys of successful individuals. Join me, David Ojenka, as we delve into the stories and journeys of real people, sharing success principles and providing actionable strategies for newcomers to thrive. Get ready to be inspired and equipped with the tools to succeed. On today's episode, we delve into the career journey of Omar Akitmo, Chief People Officer at University Pension Plan Ontario. Omar shares a remarkable story of building a career from the ground up as a black woman. In this episode, we'll delve into Omar's personal experiences and the challenges she faced on her path to finding a passion. Get ready to be inspired as we explore Omar's trailblazing leadership style, her innovative approach to culture and diversity, and the valuable lessons she's learned along the way. Please help me in welcoming Omar Akinpon. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Omar. I'm really excited for this International Women's Month because it's all about women. I don't believe in just celebrating women for one day for the great contribution that they've had on our world. So for this month, we'll be highlighting and showcasing inspiring female leaders like yourself on the podcast. To get started, there's a story behind everyone's migration. You came to Canada as a young student. Can you tell us about the early days? Can I just say thank you so much for having me here and for this opportunity that you create for us to share our stories, but also for us to learn from other people's experiences. And so I'm really grateful to be here. Um, yes, it, I mean, you make a good point about the different, the, the, and that difference in how much of a difference it makes actually when you come to Canada, when you migrate. So I came to Canada when I was about 16. And so I came just in time to do my undergrad here. At that time, there was, there were OECs, grade 13. So I did grade 13 and then I did, um, I went to university in Canada. Um, so what's the story? I, I guess somewhat, I benefited from um, well, it was a, a confluence of things. My, um, my dad had been involved in politics in Nigeria, and that was a time when it was that could pre- create that creates some security concerns. Um, but also um, the universities um, were there were lots of strikes. And I don't know if you remember this, but typically in Nigeria, when they're the university professors strike, sometimes it's months and months and months and months. And so that can impact people's ability to graduate on time. So that was also causing anxiety amongst parents. And so my siblings had had some of those experiences. And so I just kind of came, seemed to be coming up at the right time. And so an uncle of mine lived in Canada and my siblings were here. So the thinking was that I would come and join them and I would do my university education. 
It's always a dynamic story as to how one gets to Canada. Those are the primary factors that led to me coming here when I did. And wow. I'm so glad that I did because it has, like, I had a very different experience of settling into Canada and getting my career going in Canada because of that timing versus my siblings who went to university in Nigeria and came here and they struggled. They had they had to retrain, and do things that I did not have to do. So I know that that distinction actually seems like a little thing, but it is actually quite a substantial difference. Interesting that you said that your siblings had to retrain because they came to Canada later on. What about coming earlier would you say helped you? I mean, I'll tell you what my perspective is. I think it is not a surprise to any immigrant, especially people who migrate as adults, that there is a credentialism that becomes a becomes a barrier for many people who migrate to Canada. Mm-hmm. I happen to sidestep that because I came to Canada and I got my degree here so that I my undergraduate degree is Canadian and so um and and I also went to law school in Canada so I didn't have that extra hurdle of trying to convince people that my degree was the same that I had actually learned what one would learn in an undergraduate degree because I I did it here and people understood they recognized the university name so I would say that is that that made a big difference but also there might be something about coming earlier when you're a bit younger that maybe you pick up you have an opportunity outside of the work environment to kind of get used to some of the norms the social norms the unspoken rules about how people interact that can be a barrier, but nobody tells you and nobody even, they don't tell you because they don't know it. If you grew up here, you just kind of, you talk about the same things, you have the same, you have, you kind of, you you move through the world in a particular way. And because it's not conscious, it's not even like someone is trying not to share it with immigrants. They just don't even know that that's something that they say. Like things like, I mean, intangible things like I, like, um, eye contact and things like that, little things like that, that people don't even, if you grew up here, you don't realize that there are different norms about how you maintain or not maintain eye contact, those kinds of things. So, and then, so sometimes when you're, when you, I mean, not that I don't still struggle with some of those norms, because I'm sure there are things that I do that are kind of out of the norm, but I don't know. Um, But I, I came early enough that perhaps in through university, I was able to, I had that period of adjustment to kind of look around me and to kind of get used to some of the norms so that when I, by the time I was applying for real work, I had been here as a student for about, about I guess, four years of undergrad and three years, of years 70, seven years. So I'd had that seven year stint in Canadian, in Canadian life before I was applying for jobs. So I can't imagine that that did not that was not helpful. I didn't have, I also came earlier. So I, I mean, I say, people say, but you don't have a Nigerian accent. I'm like, wait till you hear me talking to my family and then you'll, or certain words. So like, I also didn't have as much of a discernible accent perhaps um, as that can also be a barrier um, for many immigrants. So I think those are some of the things that I think perhaps we're an edge, which is unfortunate because it's those things that I've just talked about have nothing to do with my skill or my knowledge. They're just those intangible things that unfortunately give some people advantages and pose become barriers for other people. There are two things that you said that I would like us to hold the thoughts for now and we'll talk more about in the course of our conversation, which is the credentialism part 
and the high contact, which is the cultural piece of it. So now speaking of integrating into the Canadian workplace as, as a young graduate and who is trying to find a place in corporate Canada, I'm sure you had a lot of questions going on in your mind in those early days. And in an article in Law and Lifestyle, you said the early days were hard as an outsider in Canada. However, you said earlier on that you had this advantage over your siblings who didn't do undergraduate degree here in Canada. What does that statement mean? It's a great question because I think it's all relative. So I know now, especially given the benefit of hindsight, right? I'm so far from that experience now looking back and I can see lots of people who had it harder than I, I did. I know lots of people who migrated around the time I did that still have not been able to work in their field. That's 20 plus years. So wow. I know that the people have it harder wow. than me, but it was still hard living that wow. experience of being, because as an immigrant, like I spent 16 years in Nigeria, surrounded by people that I knew, I knew I kind of had a sense of how things, how things worked and being immersed in a different culture. And the culture shock is like, it, it really is hard to imagine. I remember when I was coming to Canada and people were like, oh, it's going to be cold. And I was like, yeah, it's cold, but you can't even imagine winter. <laughs> like if you haven't been in it, like what's yeah. minus 20? I don't know what minus 20 feels like until you're in it. So mm -hmm. that's just like a little example of just the things that you don't, you don't expect and it's hard to imagine. And so for, I'm a black woman and I, I sometimes say like I became black at 16, not because I haven't looked like this my whole life, but I grew up around all of the people that looked that were around me were like it looked like me so race wasn't something that i was particularly alert to growing up and then you suddenly are in this concept in this context where that dis difference makes is is huge like going through my oacs i was like the top student in my class and the teachers would say oh maybe you should think about nursing or paralegal and i was like nursing paralegal those are great professions but it was odd to me that nobody was suggesting that I go to law, like I could go to law school and become a lawyer or go to medical school and become a doctor mm -hmm. and starting to come to an awareness around like being confounded by it and just like what what's going on and having to grapple with that at oh my goodness here I'm not just me I'm black and I'm a woman and this means X. So there are lots of things that you're learning and you don't quite have I, I I, I mean, I will say I benefited a lot in my career from mentors, people who have just kind of taken me under my under their wings and have just believed in me. At that point, I didn't have that. So I that was the biggest thing for me is just kind of finding that community of people that I could trust, who could guide me, who I could run things by, because I was so self-conscious because you don't know if you're doing the right thing because you don't know what the right thing is. This context is so different. So I would say that that was really, um, that was really hard. That, that period was really hard and, um, and it was helpful to lean on other, other immigrants who had, who were having similar experiences just so that we were trading stories. I, I mean, I'm glad I'm on the other side of it. Certainly the first few years were very challenging. Now let's uncover what would you say played a role for you in actually finding your own career path, you know, practicing law, eventually despite those negative voices? It's a good 
question and I, I will answer it, but I will start by saying some of it is just luck, frankly, because I know, I mean, the people that I know who have not, who I've met, who have not been able to kind of have the career success, it's not because they're not smart. It's not because of any of those things. It's so, I, I want to start by saying that I acknowledge that some of it is luck and persistence has also helped. As I said, I started to build a community for myself. One person at a time, I remember I went to undergrad at Carleton University and Professor Obi Okafor was a Nigerian professor who was teaching at Carleton at the time. I remember meeting him and his wife, Annette, and they were like my first community. And then they introduced me to the people that they knew. And so growing that community from there and having made that, that certainly made a huge difference, um, difference for me. And then, um, and then the other thing that happened is, so then I go to law school and in law school I did not have so my initial my first community was mostly immigrants and that kind of sustained me for some time and then I went to law school and I didn't have that there were I think when I was at U of T law there were maybe five black students or six black students in the three years and not lot not a lot of there were some um graduate students who were um who were um, foreign trained, who were going through the process of credentialing in Canada, but they weren't, there wasn't a sizable number. So that was the first time that like my circumstance pushed me to, because I need community to start to look at common ground from people who didn't look like me, who didn't have my experience to start to build meaningful relationships with people who were born here and had a very different context and life experience as, as I did, than I did. And so that community, as I started to grow that community, that helped. And then I did that through with my peers in law school. And I had some professors who took particular interest in me and who started to play that mentorship. And I would say in, in law school was the first time I was like, oh, wait a minute, a white man can be my mentor. <laughs> And I can learn from him and he can be invested in me. And I hadn't really kind of thought about that because it was so separate and I couldn't imagine it when I first started out. So I think part of that is like building trusting relationships with lots with other people, doing a great job at what I did so that people kind of had were invested in me and thought that I could be successful so that they gave me that chance and trying to say yes as much as possible to the opportunities that were presenting themselves. So it meant that I was doing more volunteer work and just different opportunities to kind of expand my world, to learn more about this new culture that I was in. Um, and I think all of those things ultimately um, were really helpful for me in kind of finding finding my place in, in Canada and really starting to build those networks that have helped me you demonstrated leadership through co-founding Students of Law for the Advancement of Minorities because you wanted to not just build a community for yourself, but you wanted to build a community for people who could relate to you in the sense that people who have similar needs, similar challenges, and similar desires like you. And obviously, you're a role model and a source of inspiration to a lot of immigrants and women. You've, you've had a distinguished career implementing strategic initiatives, overhauling the city of Toronto's human rights policy, and many others. What's gave you the confidence and courage to do all this? Despite the fact that, you know, like you alluded to, you're just like a lone voice amongst other people who didn't look like you, but you, you went against all odds and still did all this. What gave you the confidence and courage? 
Thank you for saying that. I don't always feel confidence and courage. And I think it is important for to say that. If there is anything I would say, it is the ability to push through despite not feeling that confidence and courage and to do what needs doing. So students of law for the advancement of minorities, like I said, when I got to U of T, there were very few students. So there were a few South Asian students, a few black students, a few East Asian students, a few indigenous students. And so, and, and so the thinking was like, what if we all came together under one umbrella, might we be able to have more impact than if we all did our thing? So I was also the president of the Black Law Students Association, but this was kind of an umbrella organization because there were some, um, that was when tuition was, tuition was being deregulated and tuition was becoming more and more, more and more unaffordable for, um, for communities. And so we wanted to advocate together. So, so some of that is like seeing a need and trying to think about a way to, try to meet that need and not because I wasn't scared or I wasn't worried or whatever that because I had the courage, but just because it needed to be done and being able to kind of fight through um, through that fear. And I, I think that's important to say, because if you're waiting, if I only did the things that I felt like I had, that I was confident that I would be successful in, I wouldn't be where I am. Part of it is just taking that chance on my on me and um, and again, saying yes to the opportunities that come through and know that even you will learn even through the failures and just trying, taking that chance. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I did take the chances that were available to me because I built so the human rights work was I was a litigator and I was particularly interested in human rights issues. So everybody got their litigation files. And when there was a request for advice from the human rights office, different lawyers could do it. And I particularly liked working with them. So I said to my boss, why don't, don't they, they might benefit from having a dedicated person who gave them advice. And, um, and that meant I still had my litigation fold files like everybody else, but it meant I had this one client that they only, they came to me primarily when they had issues. So I helped them with the policies and things like that. But many years later, when the human rights office needed new leadership, they tapped on my shoulder and asked me if I was interested in doing it. So all of those years of doing it off the side of my desk, in addition to my workload paid off because then I went and did, and that was my first like main, like formal leadership role came out of the fact that I was doing that work for all those years. And I had built that acumen and I had built that confidence in the organization that I could lead that portfolio. So some of it is it's, it's impossible. If I had started from the beginning and try to chart my, career path, I would never have imagined here, right? So it wasn't like I was like, this is the path and I'm going to do this. And then when I do this, it's going to create this opportunity. And then one day I'm going to be here. It was just like this opportunity presents itself. I think I would enjoy doing this work. So I'm going to say yes to it because I think I have the capacity to do it. And then that opens the door to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And, and it's just kind of trusting the process and being open when the opportunities present themselves, like the leadership opportunity in the human rights office, I, I found out I think on Thursday and I started on Monday. Like one day I was practicing as a lawyer and the next day I was leading the human rights, the, the, por the, the portfolio on the other side of it, not just as the advisor, but actually leading the work. But all of those years of preparation, I didn't know that I was preparing myself for it, but it turned out I was. And so that, so I think, yeah, so some of it is luck, but it's also, I've heard someone say, I think it might be Oprah who said like, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of, so I've, I've certainly have lots of experience, examples of that through my own career. We live in a world that is very noisy right now, especially for we younger people where 
There's Instagram, there's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, there's Clubhouse, several other platforms where people are inundated with information. People saying, don't do any free work for anyone because, you know, they're just going to use you. What would you say to the younger generation around that? Oh, you know what? It's a it's a hard one because I do agree that sometimes people, especially racialized people, I, this time of year are asked to do a lot of free emotional labor. Come and tell us your story about your woe and your challenges and do it again next year and do it again next year without this without providing any support or in some cases, organizations inviting people to speak and not paying. So like I understand the concern about free labor because it is labor and it's time that you could be spending on other things. At the same time, this is often the way that opportunities present themselves. So I would say this is perhaps a place where good mentorship, don't let the TikTok is not going to be your mentor. TikTok is not the place to get advice. Maybe it gives you information that you might go and inquire about, like that you might go to a mentor to ask. But I would say be strategic and thoughtful about opportunities. Give good consideration to all the opportunities that come your way. In my context, I wasn't doing it like this was um, in the context of my work. And I really wanted to do it. I had a passion around the work. I wanted to make an impact in this particular way. And so it was an op- it was a win-win for me to, to be able to do that work. So I would say get guidance from people and don't um, see the opportunities that present yourself, present themselves to you. Because if you get a reputation as somebody who does, you don't want to get a reputation as a workhorse, just take all that to David. He'll do, you don't want that either. But at the same time, don't want to have the reputation as somebody who's not interested in taking on new projects, because that's how you're going to learn. The first time you do it, you're not going to know it. So somebody's taking a chance on you and providing that opportunity to you. And if you, if you don't say yes to it because they're not prepared to pay you or make some special allowance for you, then you're closing, you're closing doors. So it's hard to say categorically, say yes to everything because you don't want to overcommit yourself. But at the same time, it's also problematic to say no to everything and see if like find that middle ground. And I think that's where people with more experience can actually be helpful. Now let's talk about your career journey because it's interesting that someone with a legal background, no HR background is now the chief culture and people officer of an organization. And when you were appointed as a chief people officer of University Pension Plan in February 2022. The Pension Plan's President and Chief Executive Officer Barbara in a press release said, Omar possesses the perfect blend of acumen and ingenuity that we are looking for. Who would you say played a role in your career journey from a lawyer to the Chief People Officer of University Pension Plan? Thank you. That's very kind of Barbara to say that. Um, okay. So it, I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a great question. And I started to answer it just now with talking about the human rights work and how that kind of, um, that that's put me on a path that eventually led me to where I am. I read Lean In many years ago, and I remember one of the things that, two things that I remember from that book, they said something about perfect is the enemy of done. I had mm-hmm. never heard that before. I'm a perfectionist. So when I heard that, I was like, oh, light bulbs went off and it's been life altering for me. And then the second concept is like your career is not a ladder. You have to think about your career like a jungle gym. Sometimes you go across to go up. You go like you may go down to go up. And so that's another concept that I, it certainly applies for me. So I started, so I do not, I am not trained as an HR person, um, but I've spent my entire career adjacent 
to HR. I was a labor employment and human rights lawyer. So I spent my whole time with HR professionals advising them on um, policies and programs. And, and like I said, the human rights work took me outside of the typical legal role because I was providing advice, but sometimes they were just consulting me on like, we've got this thorny issue that we're trying to think through. How, how, can, we, how can we do this differently? The other thing that I had the opportunity to do, even within as a lawyer, looking for informal opportunities for leadership. Within, I volunteered for we started the diversity committee at um, at in the legal department and led that initiative. I did. Um, I was involved in articling recruitment and lots of other leadership opportunities. So I had I, I had displayed my deep knowledge of HR policy and programs through the work that I was doing as a legal advisor and just like um, policy advice to. Um, to the the HR professionals and also I was involved in collective bargaining as a lawyer so I was at the the bargaining table with my HR colleagues as well and then I had demonstrated my leadership in other ways informally in through in the organization so through all of those things came together in a way that I would not have put them together into this opportunity to lead the human rights um, the human rights function and equity function at, at the city of Toronto. And so I did that for, it was supposed to be six months and then they asked me to stay for a year and then they asked me to stay for 18 months and it just, and it kind of went from there. And so doing that work and then working closely with the HR and lead, and it was a transformational role. There was, um, it was a team that needed to do that needed to go through transformation and so being successful in that role and it's like you prove yourself and then people think of you for another a, more, a bigger challenge and so that role then got merged into our hr function at the city of toronto and i was asked to put my hat in the ring for that opportunity and i did and of course and each time i'm like oh my god how am i going to do this i don't know what i'm doing but you put one foot in front of the other you ask the questions that you need to ask i would say perhaps the thing that's made me um that's been most um that's contributed most to my successes I don't assume that I know anything. I'm very transparent about what I know and what I don't know because I want people who know to tell me because I tell them I don't know. So I don't walk into any room with when I started leading this group. It was obvious that I had never, they were the experts. I was not the expert, but I knew something about leadership. I, I'm curious. Um, I, I and and so leveraging that, asking the right question, building. I'm good at building good, strong teams. I built a good team around myself, and a team of experts that tr that I trusted, that trusted me. And I would say that, um, and so I've built that expert that expertise and knowledge by practice, by doing over over the years. And yes, and so now I've I, I, I after three years in a role at the city, I'm now at a pension plan, and this is also new for me. It's a startup. I've never worked in a startup before. I'm this is pension sec. This is different sector for me. I've never been in the private sector before. So so much learning. But that curiosity, that desire for learning is what has propelled me. And so, um, I, I, I mean, I, I will credit that for my success. So it's kind of the things that Barb said. And I, uh, I hope that I'm, I'm, proving to, I'm proving her to be, have been correct in taking that <laughs> chance on me. And speaking of someone taking a chance on you and also the fact that you are a perfectionist before that light bulb moment, have you ever made mistakes before as a leader? And if yes, tell us the story of a mistake you made and how you corrected that. <laughs> it's funny that you asked me that question after pointing out that I'm a perfectionist. I'm like, 
mistakes. Do you want me to tell you the mistakes that I made this morning, this last hour? Like, <laughs> like as a perfection, I know, I, I know everything that I could have done, I could have done better. I'm at a point in my career where it's really hard for me to ask, like to definitively asking for big things, that's like a mistake because I have learned over and over again that even the things that seem like mistakes and failures, a year from now, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that I had that experience because it's kept me from having this other, creating this other mistake. So I, 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 I think about that, like in terms of when I think about like big things as mistakes, I, I would say early on in my career, while I was practicing law, I decided, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go to go South Africa and I'm going to go do international development work because that's what I want to do, et cetera, et cetera. And then I quit. And thankfully, the city solicitor at the time called me into her office and said, are you sure that that's, she said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go. I want to save the world. I'm going to go do international development, blah, blah, blah. And she said, have you thought about taking a leave instead of quitting? And I hadn't really thought about that. And I was young at the time. And I was like, no, I just want to, I want to go. I want to start out on this new path. And she said, why don't you consider taking a leave? And then you have the option of coming back. And so when I think back on my career, I am, that is one of the things that I still kind of, I'm like, oh my goodness, that would have been a big mistake if I had actually done that, if she hadn't. And that's somebody else who like one of the good luck stories in my, in my career that she helped me, um, she helped me stay, stay connected to the city. And then I came back and I was able to say, you know what? I was doing property tax assessment law. That's not bringing me joy. I would like to do this other thing instead. I'll come back and do what I was doing before, but can you just help me? Can we never, can we talk about how I could transition to doing labor and employment law? Cause that's where my passion is. And so that was one of those moments of learning about self-advocacy to be able to say, what are they going to say? They'll say, no, I don't want to do this work. So asking for what I wanted. So like taking the opportunity that was presented, but also asking for what I wanted. And so that has come up, like that has served me well so many times in my career where I have um, just been able to kind of remember, okay, I'm trying to make this decision to avoid something. Why don't I just ask for what it is that I think the better what I think the better outcome will be and ask for what I want. And that self-advocacy has been certainly very beneficial to me. So when I think back on my career, that's one of the things that kind of still like, it gives me goosebumps when I think about how, how many things might not have happened if I hadn't, if I had kind of just been like hardheaded and stubborn about that and not actually taken the opportunity that was presented to me. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what comes to mind. Now let's talk about immigrants. You said earlier, you spoke about credentialism. You also talked about the cultural piece, like what's looking into people's eyes when you're talking to them. For example, in Nigeria, using Nigeria as an example, looking into the eye of an elderly person is a sign of disrespect. But here in Canada, if you're talking to someone and you're not looking into their eyes, it's a sign that you're either lying or you're not a confident person. Now, the issue of no Canadian experience, no job, no job, no Canadian experience is still very real for internationally trained professionals and even immigrants who decide to call Canada home. I've had the privilege of speaking to a lot of hiring managers based on what I do at the Fresh Start Hub. And some of their concerns are what you just said. You know, there's no way we can validate the credentials they present to us. Also, we, we don't even know if they're a culture fit. So 
we're struggling with some of those things. And we've been able to advocate to say, okay, where can we bridge the gap here? But I would like to hear from you. How do you think hiring managers and organizations should consider candidates with foreign trained credentials and experience? They should do that the way they consider people with credentials from anywhere else, from Canadian universities. And I think you should take it at face value because I, why would we assume otherwise? Especially because of the way the Canadian immigration system is. We are doing point, it's a point system for the most part. That's how a lot of immigrants, not all, like people come here through the refugee stream and lots of others, but many people come here as skilled professionals. So the Canadian government vetted their credentials as part of the process of letting them come to Canada. And now we're here and then we create these barriers. There is like there's skills shortages in many fields. And it, it, it actually happens to be that the areas where there's skills shortages are many of the areas where we're bringing in immigrants. And then we get here and we don't hire them. And we still are talking about those skills shortages. I facilitated a panel for the Canadian Black Scientist Network last week and hearing these stories about STEM. These are the areas where we desperately need people and people are driving taxis and driving Uber and doing lots of other jobs because they cannot, and engineers with those. So we're creating, Canada's creating brain drains in countries and then they're getting here and we're not actually leveraging their skills. And what we were saying on that, people were saying on that panel was about how we're squandering talent and what just like an abomination that is for us to be doing. So I would say we have lots of processes as HR professionals. Many organizations have probation periods. Even if you don't have a probation period, even if the person's here beyond, if the person is not working out and is not able to do what you've hired them to do, it is not a life sentence hiring a person. <laughs> Hire them, let them come into the organization and give them a, an opportunity to demonstrate whether or not they can do the work. There are lots of ways that people can validate their credentials. So if you have a, a system where you require people to validate their credentials, but through whatever the system the Canadian government requires. Well, once people have done that, you have to take them at face value. I have hired many new immigrants and they have proven to be amazing contributors. Like I have not had any more less success with brand new immigrants than I have with, with Canadian people with Canadian experience. So I think it just requires us to be willing to take a chance. Any hire is a, chance taking any hire is risky people don't think they, they look good on paper and they like so why wouldn't we offer um tra foreign trained professionals the same opportunities that we're offering others and i also want to put another dimension to this because i don't want to make it seem like all immigrants are having the same experience because it's not the case we have many people are coming from England and from European countries and are, are able to find work in their area in their areas of specialization, but it's also racialized immigrants, racial immigrants from countries that are not English speaking, things like that that seem to be be particularly impacted. So we're able to we'll accept a, a, a credential that comes from the Netherlands and we'll accept something from Germany and England, but we won't accept somebody who's coming from India. Or even those, like, so, so I think we need to check our biases and we need to really, what we need to do is we need to give people a chance and we need to manage them like anybody else. And if it's not working out, separate. But I, I think in most cases, you have a pool of talent that has demonstrated resilience, adaptability, multilingual, 
like the the research is dem demonstrating just how many degrees immigrants have, how well skilled they are. Why wouldn't we be tapping into that talent? So I could talk forever about this because I feel like a particular um, passion around around the missed opportunity. Now let's talk about women in the workplace and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Amal, would you say the glass ceiling for Black women are softened at all? If not, what can organizations do better? I think what what's happened, the main difference that I have observed is that we're having more meaningful conversations about difference and different experiences. I think years ago, I'm going to go back to my law school days. At that point, we were advocating around inclusion and diversity. And we would say, and the law school would say to us, like, yeah, our diversity numbers keep going up and up and up every year. And I'm like, wait a minute, but I'm looking around. I don't see any black people in this organization. How many black people are you actually ad admitting? And at that point, nobody was disaggregating data. So they were just, it was the visible minority as a group. And so there wasn't an openness to interrogating the different experiences of different racialized groups, for instance. So I say fast forward 20 years, 17, 20 years, and people are able to have those conversations. So is has it softened? I don't know, it hasn't, but there has been some progress made that is promising that I hope that the conversations are not gonna last another 20 years before they start to bear fruit. But I think people are having meaningful conversations today to say like all visible minorities don't, they all face barriers, but it's not always the same barrier. Like what is it that people believe about black women that make advancement different? Like, so the black women, I, I just read from reading the research, like black women, it's like black women are angry, black women are belligerent, it's all of these things. And then, so for instance, um, so interrogating that and, and, and thinking about that bias will, will start to make progress, but we're not quite there yet. And I think can count on one hand, the number of times in the last several months I've been in the room, with another black woman leader. We have somebody on our board who identifies as, an, as a black woman. So often in those relations, but other than that, one, I can only think about one probably in the last year when I've been in the room with another and looked over and saw myself reflected in somebody else who was in a role close to my um, level of seniority in an organization. So there's still a lot of work to be done before we actually see the representation of women, black women in leadership roles as they should be. Now, speaking of that problem or challenge, I would call it, like you mentioned, that in the last year, you've not seen someone at your level of seniority. You've not seen many people. You've seen just one. And as a prominent advocate and spokesperson for diversity and inclusion in Canadian business, how do you think organizations can build a future of work that works for all? I would say the first thing that organizations should be doing is hearing from their own people about what the particular barriers are in their own organizations and creating those spaces that are neutral and that facilitate open, honest conversation. Because there are some systemic, there are systemic barriers for sure, but they take on different forms in different organizations. So hearing from the people who know your organization and know what would be successful. Years ago, it was all about mentorship. And then we mentored and mentored and mentored and nothing changed. And now we're talking about sponsorship and what it means actually to sponsor people and to say, 
I'm going to call out David's name. I'm going to make sure that, that other people hear about this person's talent. So I, I think organizations need to be intentional. They need to listen. We all need to listen to our people about what will be helpful. We need to collect data. We shouldn't be making assumptions about where people are or not. Like we need to know exactly. We need to collect the data. We need to collect disaggregated data, not be making broad assumptions. Different different um, subsets have different experiences and then use that data, take a, a spirit of curiosity to it and then try things try different things. It's not one thing, but just experiment with it to determine what might, what might be, might be helpful, but also then contribute to the thought leadership. So when you have done something in your organization that works or done something in your organization that didn't work, let us also kind of all share what those things are so that we all kind of can learn from each other. We have to have an open dialogue about this, but I do think that it's you have to prioritize it because the data about how much diversity enriches organizations performance is pretty conclusive at this point. So it is a business imperative that we can, we should all be, if we're, if we're really committed to the bottom line, then you really should be committed to diversity as a way to improve your bottom line. So any of your business outcomes will be improved by having different people at the table. But I also think like, like set, meaningful goals for yourself as an organization and go out um, go out and then support people when they come because I think a lot of people they a lot of focuses on like getting people there and then you hear the experience of the people who have come in and it's not like nobody's really actually minding that experience to make sure that it's meaningful. I'm not a big fan of a single like you do an initiative and you go out and bring the, the first if you think about the experiences of the first the first woman in a workplace that's not a very positive experience for most people and so thinking about meaningful to bring in cohorts of people and then to guide them and mentor them through the organization so there's not one solution but it's a it's it's creating a structure to hear to experiment and to to then scale whatever works and then to continue its continuous improvement, then to continue to check it, check on it, make sure it works. It's not, it's not any different from any other problem that we do, we, we solve as business leaders. We, we define the problem clearly, devise a solution, and then we also make, we evaluate to make sure that the solution is having the desired outcomes. But if you think it's just plug and play, you're going to do something and then you're going to walk away and then it's magic that the last 20 years has shown us that that's not the way it works. Look at how much we've been talking about, like not even an intersectional lens, just women's inclusion, women's inclusion and on boards. We've been talking about it now for decades and look where we are. We're still not where we need to be. So I, I mean, that should tell us that then, and then we layer on other levels of diversity um, of identity on, on and, and it just, it becomes more complex. So it's not a, it's not an easy problem to solve, but it is definitely a solvable one. Finally, imagine you're sitting across a young female newcomer or even any newcomer at all, or even an immigrant, what advice would you give them to navigate their journey? How would you advise them to showcase their unique experience or experiences that they bring to the workplace? It's a good question. I would say that it probably will be challenging and you're probably going to hear a lot of no's. 
every no is one step closer to the yes and it takes a lot of persistence to kind of keep going so it's very important that you need to create a support network for yourself so that as you're going through this process that you have people to kind of check to check in on and to talk to on the days when it's it's hard so i would say because I, I mean mental health is something that's really important to me and so i i want to start there I, I talked about mentorship and I want to come back to it because it has been incredibly beneficial to me to find those people who are invested in you and leverage them and trust them and get their guidance for, for yourself as you get through, because you're not going to know anything. That's the benefit of being, that's the the reality of being new. So having people that can, um, that can help you and um, to guide you is important, but also believe in yourself and keep trying and don't let the no's define you. Don't, don't let them get into your head, even as hard as it is that you just kind of, you have to keep going. And if that one road, that one path isn't the one, try another path and just, and, and you, I mean, like, I think the key word is persistence. And there are absolutely people along that path who want to help you and you have to find them and you have to leverage them and you have to think in different ways about your career and in dynamic ways about your career and how you're going to get what you get what you you need and and get the career that will will best suit you and bring you joy and bring you that sense of fulfillment but it's um but i also would say i believe in you because i do think that we're we're in this moment where people are starting to see just the incredible talent that's out there. And so I, I hope that doors will, will, will continue to open for people. I am optimistic. I am optimistic that, that because of a podcast like this, right, because there are so many people who are coming at it from lots of different angles, helping to create that, to bring that world that we all envision that is more inclusive to make it more real. And so I'm optimistic, even the existence of this, like that you have your own day job. But in addition to that, you're making this effort to get this message out there and to provide support. So it's not just who's in your circle, there are also online supports and there's TikTok, there are lots of different groups that people have. So I'm optimistic that we're kind of, that we're picking, that there's hopefully that this is the moment where there will be momentum and that, that in 10 years, we will be hopefully be telling a different story. Thank you so much. And I truly, truly appreciate you making time out of a very busy schedule to have this conversation with me. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm not joking. Like it means a lot to me that you were taking your time to do this because I'm sure there's lots of, I don't know if you have kids. I don't know if you, I don't know what else is going in your life, but I'm sure there are lots of other things that you could be doing with your time. Yeah. So I do think like this would have been very meaningful to me when I was younger and I'm glad that it exists now. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fresh Start. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone you know and love. Please go ahead and subscribe on any platform you listen to your podcast. And also please take a moment to leave us a review because that would help us to reach more audience. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at freshstartorb. If you know any newcomer you think would be a good fit to interview for the podcast, we'd like to hear from you please go to www.thefreshstartup.com to nominate someone. We appreciate you and remember, no matter how hard the past is, you can always begin again. Take care and have a great week.